Our second reading is from the prophet Jonah, chapters 3 and 4. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The word of the Lord. For those of you that don't know me and perhaps haven't been here the past few weeks, my name is Dan Murata. I am not on staff here. I'm actually on staff at a church called the Falls Church Anglican uh, just down the road. And I'm here because I want to learn from you. Uh, and even though I'm the one talking right now, I'm actually here to learn because in just about a year, our family is going to move down to Richmond, Virginia in order to plant a church. And we hope that the church we plant will look a lot like this one. And, uh, and so I'm thankful to be here. I've been here for a couple weeks now, um, and I've really enjoyed getting to know many of you. There's a short story called The Princess and the Tiger by Frank Stockton. It's a wonderful story, and uh, if you know it, it's actually incredibly infuriating as well. But I'm going to tell it to you. Once upon a time, in a faraway land, there was a beautiful princess, stunning princess, and she one day... Uh, happened to glance out of her castle window and saw a robust, strong, handsome commoner, a peasant boy, and she fell head over heels for him. The two met, and they began to spend time together, and before uh, much time had passed, both this common peasant boy and this beautiful princess were just madly in love with one another. And this would have been, you know, great, except that it was illegal in this particular country. Uh, it was not legal for a commoner and, a, and royalty to marry each other, and their secret love was discovered. The princess was banished to a castle far away, and the young peasant boy was thrown into jail, and he awaited his trial. And when the day of the trial came, he found out that it wasn't a trial. It was a test. You see, what they did is they took this peasant boy, this commoner, and they put him in an arena. And in front of him were two doors, and he was told that behind the first door, uh, or behind one of the two doors, there was a ferocious tiger. And if he chose that door, then as soon as he opened it, that tiger would tear him to shreds. And behind the second door, or behind one of the other doors, was a beautiful peasant girl. Not the princess, but a girl that he could legally marry. And if he chose that door, then they would be wed on the spot and hopefully live happily ever after. Now, the boy doesn't know which door is which, but the princess, who has been invited to the trial or the test, is sitting in the stands, and she knows which door is which. 
And as the peasant boy is standing before the two doors, he glances up at the princess and she gestures to him, indicating which door he should choose. And he walks to the door and he grabs the handle and he turns the knob and he swings it open. His eyes widen, the crowd gasps, and the story ends. It's annoying as all get out. The point of the story of the princess and the tiger is not to frustrate the reader. The point is to make the reader think about the nature of love. The dilemma facing the princess before she gestures to the boy is kind of a tough one if you think about it. Uh, From our emotionally neutral position this morning, uh, we would say that, well, if she really loved him, what would she do? Well, surely she would lead him towards you know, not the tiger, but someone else who, you know, could make him happy and uh, they would go on to have a nice life. And it wouldn't be with her, but, you know, surely that would be what's best for him. But have you ever, have you ever wanted something or someone so much that if you can't have it, you'd rather no one have it? You ever experienced that kind of desire before? This princess is infatuated with this young man. Just the thought of him married to somebody else makes her burn with rage and jealousy Maybe she'd rather see him dead than married to somebody else. What she chooses to do will depend entirely upon whether she actually loves him or not. Because we all know, all of you and I know, that real love does what? Real love desires what is best for the other person. Real love would sacrifice for the good of someone else. It's what makes a healthy marriage work or not work. It's what makes a healthy friendship work or not work. If there's real love present, real love that desires the good of the other person, it's what makes relationships work. For the past six weeks, this church has been in the midst of a sermon series titled Loving the Unlovable. And let's review where we've been uh, for just a few minutes. First, a few weeks ago, we took a look at the prophet Hosea. Boy, did he have a tough life. Hosea had the worst calling I've ever heard of from God. Hosea was called to go and marry a woman named Gomer who would then cheat on him over and over and over again. And Hosea was called by God to pursue his wife, his cheating wife, over and over again and forgive her. And Hosea's life was meant to be a metaphor for God's people, showing them that this is what God does for them. Even when they cheat on God, even when they are disloyal and disobedient to God, God pursues them and forgives them over and over and over again. But God's people didn't really take the message to heart. And so along came Amos. Amos came and he preached a message of judgment. But even buried in Amos's message that was mostly pretty harsh was still God's pursuit still God's forgiveness, still God's desire to restore his people. And so even in Amos's message, we saw God's love and compassion on display again. And then last week we came to Jonah. What an incredible story. Here we see God's compassion and love, both for Jonah and for the people of Nineveh. There's a theme emerging here. Everyone sees it. Uh, Over and over again, there are wicked people who disobey and run away from God and are disloyal to him. And over and over again, God pursues them in order to forgive them and restore them. But uh, let's, let's get one thing straight here. We are not looking the past six weeks on how we have been able to love and are loving and are going to love the unlovable. We are the unlovable. The theme of the minor prophets... Hosea, Amos, and Jonah is God's love, God's pursuit, 
God's compassion towards people who don't deserve it. Over and over again, we see God faithfully pursuing, faithfully forgiving. And the characters to whom we are asked to relate are not the heroes of the story, as tempting as that might be. You know, it's, it's worth mentioning. Some of us walk through the doors of James Madison High School this morning, and some of us are very in touch with our own brokenness with our own wickedness, with our own addictions and problems and secret issues that no one else really knows about. You were keenly feeling it when you woke up this morning. You don't need me to remind you of those things. And what you need to hear this morning is that God's love and compassion is right there in the seat next to you. It is available to you. It is there for you. It has been chasing you. However, I suspect if I'm just assuming that any of you are even just the least bit like me, that you are not always deeply in touch with your own brokenness and your own wickedness and your own issues and, and problems because we live in a culture and a society that is surrounded by the message that we are very lovable people. We're great. Why would God not love us? We're so awesome. We, we are told over and over again how much we deserve to be loved how valuable we are, how worthwhile we are, how natural it would be for people to forgive us and like us and think well of us. And when we hear that message over and over and over again, you know what happens? It becomes so easy to think that we're entitled to God's love. And you know what happens next? When you begin to read books like Hosea and Amos and Jonah, or really any book in the Bible, and you're, and you're faced with the love of God that is pursuing wicked people, it can become so easy to just think, well, that's how it should be. Of course God would love and pursue and chase after people. They're entitled to it. They're lovable, worthwhile, worthy. And what is meant to be surprising and shocking and stunning in the scriptures actually becomes bland and normal and commonplace. But that's not the reality that we've been studying for the past six weeks. And I suspect if we are willing to turn the lens inward and take a close look at the secret desires and twisted addictions and, and secrets of our own hearts, what we find is that we're not so lovable. We're not so worthy. We're actually not so entitled to good things like compassion and forgiveness and love. And when that happens, when we turn that lens inward and we take a close, harsh, tough look at our own lives, what happens then when we begin to read about the stories of God pursuing his people, they become surprising. They become shocking. They become stunning. So stunning and so surprising that they demand a response from us because we realize that they're not deserved. And when that kind of love is shown in such an undeserved way, in such a compassionate way, then of course you have to respond. What choice do you have? And so this morning, we're going to talk about our response to God's love and to God's compassion. The harsh stuff is over. Don't worry. It's behind us now. We're going to talk about our response and our response to God's love, to his pursuit, to God's heart of compassion towards us is to align our hearts with God's heart. That's our response. To begin to want the things that God wants. To care about the things that he cares about. To love the kind of people 
that he loves. And, you know, if, if that sounds nice, I don't know whether it does or not, but if that sounds nice to you, uh, it's actually incredibly difficult. And we're going to see this morning in Jonah just how difficult this was uh, for him, for Jonah. And, and before we get into that, it's worth noting also that the book of Jonah is a literary masterpiece. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis that says, a children's story that can only be appreciated by children is not a good children's story, not in the slightest. And this is certainly true of Jonah. Jonah is such a simple tale. It's only four chapters. You can read it in like eight minutes. Uh, it's such a simple tale that it can be appreciated by the youngest children. But it is so sophisticated that it really reveals some of the deepest truths about the human condition. At one level, we have a powerful tale of one man's disobedience and God's relentless pursuit and desire to bring a wicked city full of disobedient, rebellious, violent people into repentance and relationship with himself. And at a whole nother level, we have a grand story that actually serves as a bit of a recapitulation. And by that, I mean a retelling of the big story of Scripture. And here's what I mean. Check this out. Let's think about the Bible. How does the Bible begin? God makes the world. God creates humanity. So here we have humanity. What does humanity do? They disobey. Ah, but God pursues them, even in their disobedience, even when they don't deserve it. We have humanity. We have disobedience. We have God's pursuit. And the pursuit of God, of humanity, culminates, comes to a climax in what? In the death, the three-day entombment, and then the resurrection of Jesus. That is the height, that is the clearest picture we could ever see of God's pursuit of disobedient human beings. But then what happens after that? After the resurrection of Christ, the church, Jesus' followers, are sent out into mission to pursue, the way God pursues, all of the disobedient human beings that are running away from him. What's the story of Jonah? It begins with a man, a human. A human who disobeys. Ah, but God pursues him. And so we have a human in disobedience and then God's pursuit. And God's pursuit of Jonah culminates, climaxes in what? Jonah's metaphorical death and three-day entombment in a whale. And then, in a less glorious resurrection, <laughs> Jonah is spewn out onto the beach by this giant fish. And then what happens? Then he is sent into mission to go and reach other disobedient people that are running away from God. The story of Jonah is, in a sense, the big story of the Bible. And in this story, this small story of Jonah, we get a glimpse of God's heart, both for Jonah and for the city of Nineveh. And it's the same God with the same heart that we see all throughout the Bible. And we see God's heart most clearly where? in the person of Jesus. Now, some of you might be a little bit lost here. Uh, what is Dan talking about? What does Jonah have to do with Jesus? Some of you might be convinced, some of you might not be convinced. Maybe I'm just making this stuff up. Uh, let's take a closer look at the two scripture passages that were read this morning, and let's see what we find there. What happened when Jonah finally made it to Nineveh and began preaching there? You know, the response of the Ninevites, the people of Nineveh, to Jonah's preaching is totally shocking. Because when Jonah gets there, he has got to be the worst evangelist of all time. This is what Jonah does. He begrudgingly goes off to the city of Nineveh. He still doesn't really want to go. He's willing to obey, but he doesn't like it. He stomps into Nineveh. 
He tromps into the city. He doesn't even go to the town square. He doesn't go to some sort of place of prominence where everyone's gonna hear his, his message for the people. Instead, he just picks a random spot, stands up, hitches up his robes, which are probably covered with fish guts, and bellows out, God's gonna blow you up. You have 40 days. And he stomps back out. I don't know what the modern equivalent of that would be today, but no matter how you slice it, it's not very tactful, is it? And that's what makes the response of the people of Nineveh so stunning, so shocking, so surprising. The people of the city, from the king all the way down to the lowliest slave, they all get on their knees and they repent and they beg for mercy from God. Every single one of them is struck to the heart with how unlovable they actually are. And they begin to beg for forgiveness from God. And my favorite line in the entire story of Jonah is a line that comes from the king of Nineveh. After he's put out this decree telling everyone to, you know, repent and ask for forgiveness from God, it's, it's almost like, verbally, he shrugs his shoulders and says, who knows, maybe God will relent. Maybe he won't destroy us. It's such a humble statement. He knows he's not entitled to anything. He knows he's unlovable. He knows that because of his violent and wicked past and because of his city's violent and wicked past, they're entitled to Jack. And so he just says, who knows? Let's repent. Maybe God will have mercy on us. Such genuine, authentic spirituality. Assumes nothing, just comes to God with open hands asking for help. And here we see a striking comparison. You know, Jonah has every reason to align his heart with God's heart. Jonah is a Hebrew. He grew up in the church, so to speak. He has heard the voice of God. He's experienced miracles. And he still won't align his heart with God's heart. He's still too stubborn. The people of Nineveh, on the other hand, have no reason to align their heart with God's heart. And yet here they are, they're humbled, they're begging for mercy, repenting of their wickedness. And repentance is the first step, isn't it? Repentance is the first step towards aligning your heart with God's heart. And we're gonna see this come into play a few hundred years later. If you fast forward through history, all the way to our second scripture reading this morning, to the Gospel of Matthew. Here we have Jesus He's alive, he's on the earth, he is going about his ministry, and all of a sudden, some religious teachers come with a question to him. Now, these religious teachers were, like Jonah, Hebrews. They grew up in church. They had read God's laws. They had, in a sense, heard the voice of God uh, through Scripture. They uh, were familiar with what God required of human beings. They had seen and experienced miracles, but still they won't align their hearts with God's heart. And Jesus has some very stern words for these folks. Jesus says this, he says, he references Jonah. He says, the men of Nineveh at the, in the last days will rise up in judgment of this generation because when they heard Jonah's teaching, they repented. But you have someone way greater than Jonah here, <laughs> way more tactful, with a lot more to say, and still you've, you've not repented. God, throughout the course of the entire history of humanity, has been calling human beings to align their hearts with his heart, 
to care about the things he cares about, to want the things he wants, to love the kind of people that he loves. And the first step towards doing that, the very first step for humans is repentance. And in these two passages, Jonah chapter 3 and Matthew 12, we see the people of Nineveh, despite all of their wicked and evil and violent, messed up ways, through repentance, they actually get it right. And they take the first step in aligning their hearts with God. You know, when the wheels of your car are not quite aligned right, what happens? It's really tough to drive. It's tough to get where you're going. And in a sense, this is sort of cheesy, but human beings are a little bit like cars in that we were made to go. God created people for a purpose, for a mission, to do his work in the world. And when our hearts are not aligned with his heart, it doesn't go very well. When we don't want what he wants, when we don't care about the things he cares about, when we don't love the kind of people that he loves, just like when your wheels are not aligned, it can kind of make a wreck of a car. It kind of makes a wreck of people when their hearts are not aligned with his. And if you go home this afternoon or at some point this week and you read chapter four of Jonah, the very end of the story, here's what you'll see. Jonah's a wreck. His heart is not aligned with God's heart and it wrecks him. He is so angry, he's so frustrated, he wants to die. He doesn't want what God wants. God wants to see Nineveh, this terrible city. He wants to save it. Jonah wants to see it burn. Jonah doesn't love who God loves. God loves these wicked, messed up, sick, twisted, violent people, and Jonah would love to see them obliterated. What's the nature of love? Remember the princess and the tiger? Let's go back to that. Real love desires what is best for the other person, right? Our culture is infatuated with the idea of love. And I say it that way on purpose, the idea of love. Because the idea of being a loving person in 2015 is totally popular and very normal. We see it all over the place. But actually loving a person, actually being a loving person, that's totally radical. And it looks kind of like this, because don't we all know that the idea of making a kind gesture towards someone who's unpopular, that's like such a normal thing. Every teen movie ever is like about that, making a kind gesture towards someone who's unpopular. However, actually pursuing a friendship with someone who is violent and sick, that's, that's radical. That can't possibly be in your best interest because it's in their best interest, not yours. Saying that, what you, that you just want what is best for someone else totally normal. Actually working and sacrificing for the good of other people who don't like you, that's radical. Being nice to not nice people, that's normal. It's called being polite. Loving the unlovable, that's radical. And that's exactly what God does. God demonstrates for us the true nature of love. He does this in Hosea by showing us how he pursues his own people through Hosea's pursuit of his cheating wife. He shows us in Amos how even in the midst of judgment, he still just really wants to forgive and have mercy and restore his people. We see it in Jonah, how God is so patient with Jonah, no matter how much of a knucklehead he is, and how what he really wants from the people of Nineveh is for them to turn and repent so that he can save them. That's what God really wants. We see it most clearly in the person of Jesus. Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection. That's where we see God's love and pursuit the clearest. So, who does God love today? Here's a short list. <clears throat> I suspect 
God loves IRS auditors. I'm going to go out on a limb here. It's just a theory. I suspect God loves school bullies, those boys and girls who make your lives miserable. I suspect that God loves the person who lets their dog do his business in your front yard and then doesn't clean it up. God loves that person. So annoying. God loves your boss, even if he or she is a total jerk. God loves the guy who stole your girlfriend. Now, we have to kill him, but it, God still loves him. That's the point, right? God loves the solicitor who calls you during dinner hours to sell you junk you don't need. God loves the candidate for the other political party. He does. God loves the talking heads on MSNBC and Fox. God loves the person who used to be your best friend until they stabbed you in the back by telling everyone that embarrassing thing about you. God loves them. We don't understand it. He loves them. It drives us crazy, but he loves them. Sometimes we wish he didn't, but he loves them. God keeps loving all of these annoying, irritating, stupid, irresponsible, backstabbing, gossiping, stealing, cheating, lying, hating, terrible, awful, no good, very bad people. And he also loves people outside of this room. Isn't that great? So here's the deal. God loves us, the unlovable. And in response to God's radical, shocking, stunning, surprising, undeserved, not entitled, unwarranted love, we respond by seeking to align our hearts with God's heart. And here's what that means. It means wanting what he wants. It means loving who he loves. It means caring about the things that God cares about. So what does God want? God wants wicked people to repent and join his family. So what do we want? We want the worst people we know to repent and join God's family. How are we gonna do that? How do you change your desires? How do you turn disgust with someone into love? How do you actually do that? Well, it begins in the same place that it began for the people of Nineveh. It begins with humble repentance. You see, for most of us, when we take a clear and honest look inward, we fully realize just how unlovable we actually are. And we can't help but be humbled. And when we're humbled before God, well, repentance is kind of the next logical step. We'll beg for his mercy because we know we're not entitled to it. And rest assured, if you take one thing, please take this. Rest assured that just as surely as God pursued his people the way Homer pursued his cheating wife, and just as surely as God sought to restore and forgive his people, even though they were disobedient in Amos, and just as surely as God pursued Jonah, even though he was a knucklehead, and just as surely as God pursued the people of Nineveh, even though they were vile and violent, God promises that he will forgive you and restore you. And God always keeps his promises. If we really, genuinely are humble in our repentance, then our only possible response to God's forgiveness to us is what? Gratitude. That's the logical response. That's the only genuine response you can have to that kind of love and compassion. And if you can be humble and repentant and grateful before God, you are well on your way to aligning your heart with God's heart. Because when you begin to have that kind of relationship with God, well, then you'll begin to care about the things he cares about. You'll begin to want the sort of things he wants. You'll begin to love the sort of people that he loves. And those people with whom you are so disgusted, you begin to see them through the eyes of God. You know, most of our, 
Most of our disgust and loathing with other people is based on a pretty high view of ourselves, isn't it? And when we're brought low and we experience God's compassion and love for us, then we actually stand a chance of changing. It's sort of like taking the wheels off the car. You admit there's a problem. You take the wheels off the car and you let the mechanic get in there and start to work. That's what repentance is. That's what humble, grateful repentance does. Let's conclude. Not just this sermon, but the entire series. God loves the unlovable. Our response is humble repentance and gratitude so that our hearts can be aligned with God's heart. And only then will we learn to love the unlovable the way that God loves the unlovable. In just a moment, Ryan is gonna come up and he's gonna lead us in a song of response. And we chose a song that was very familiar to most of us. It's a hymn called Come Thou Fount. The second line of that hymn is about aligning our hearts with God's heart. And the phrase goes, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Here's what I suggest we all do together. When that line in the song comes, let's together make that line a sincere prayer to God, asking him to tune our hearts, to align our hearts with his heart so that we can begin to care about the things he cares about, want the kind of things he wants, and love the kind of people that he loves the way that he loves us. Let's pray and then let's sing. Jesus, we're thankful for Hosea and the way that you called him to pursue someone that was not worth pursuing. We're thankful for Amos and for the way that you spoke through him and let us know, even thousands of years later, how much you want to restore and forgive and have mercy on people that don't obey you. God, thank you for Jonah. Thank you for pursuing him and not giving up on him. Thank you for pursuing some of the most wicked people on earth at that time in history and for not giving up on them. And God, thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for pursuing us. We are so grateful. We want to humbly repent and to turn towards you. Would you please help us to tune our hearts? Would you please help us to align our hearts with yours? We love you and we're thankful. Amen. Let's sing this together and let's pray this together.
Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy